I'm Dominic Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine, hear about Wagner Group activities in Africa, we hear of Russian malign influence still in Georgia, and we have an interview with one of President Zelensky's closest advisors, Mikhailo Podolyak. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 1st of March, 2024. Two years and six days since the full-scale invasion began. Today, I'm joined by assistant comment editor Francis Durnley and special correspondents Hayley Dixon and Tim Sigsworth. I started with the latest military updates from Ukraine. Russian forces are continuing to try to exploit their recent successes in the Avdivka area in the east. They're trying to keep that momentum heading to the west and northwest. They have advanced in some areas. They've been pushed back or at least denied further forward movement in others. This is not we're not talking large swathes of territory, but there are there's little sign of significantly well-prepared Ukrainian defensive lines in the area. General Alexander Sersky, the head of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, has been visiting the area there. So he made a statement this morning saying that pretty much what I've just said, that Russian forces have gone forward and back in some areas. And to the north of that line, Russia is pushing hard against the imagined line, sort of Kupiansk, Savatove, Kremina, that kind of area in the northeast. They've not made any recent significant gains in that area. The ISW, our friends over there, the Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, they're assessing that Russia's ability to make operationally significant advances, as in much bigger than just the one or two kilometer tactical advances, but big chunks of territory, huge oblasts, that kind of scale, their ability to make those kind of advances still largely depends on the level of Western support for Ukraine. And they say well-provisioned Ukrainian forces have proven that they can prevent Russian forces from making even marginal gains, which I think we would echo in reporting that. Now, separately, Ukraine's chief ombudsman, Dmitry Lubinets, he's speaking earlier today, he said that Russia has not yet provided Ukraine with any official list confirming that there were Ukrainian prisoners of war on board that IL-76, remember the Aleutian, the big transport aircraft that crashed in Russia's Belgorod Oblast in late January. Mr Lubinets was speaking after his Russian counterpart, Tatyana Moslakova, claimed Moscow's readiness to hand over the bodies of these uh, allegedly killed uh, POWs. He said they were ready to hand them over to Kiev. Russia has alleged, you'll remember, that the, the military aircraft crashed on January the 24th, was shot down by Ukrainian forces, and it was carrying 65 captured Ukrainian fighters on their way to be handed over. No evidence seen of bodies there. I think it is reasonably well considered it was brought down by a Ukrainian surface-to-air missile, but quite who was on board, we do not know. Now then, finally for me, reports, unverified reports, I should stress, of a Ukrainian special forces operation that met with disaster in Crimea yesterday. So the Kyiv Post saying that this early morning engagement that took place near the Tenderovsky Island, that's supposed to be, that's a narrow spit of land on the southeast coast of Crimea, they say Ukraine's defence ministry confirmed that an unsuccessful raid had taken place. They also add, according to Russian sources, so alarm bells, alarm bells, 
Five small boats loaded with Ukrainian troops from the 73rd, I think it's a brigade, a hand-picked unit specialising in clandestine maritime warfare. They say they approached the the low-lying sandy beach, attempted to land. And again, this is still Russian sources quoting this or being reported. They say that after a short battle, three of the landing craft were sunk and up to 20 Ukrainian special ops folks were killed. Now, we can't verify any of that keeping an eye on it. What I would say, though, is that when things are not going well elsewhere, such as in the East at the moment and the counteroffensive last year, yeah, I've seen it in other militaries, seen it in the British military, there is a great temptation to launch eye-catching operations. That temptation is very strong. High risk can bring high reward, but it can also bring disaster if you don't plan or um, prepare enough or simply if lady luck isn't with you that day. So, the consequences of such a loss, especially on morale, is overlooked in this rush, this desire to plan and get something going. And sometimes they not just desire, but demand for victory. So on the back of this unverified report, I would say I would urge anyone listening to this who is in a planning capacity now in the armed forces of Ukraine, I urge you to think very, very carefully about such operations. It's all very good being roughy, toughy, special forces soldiers, but... Risk-taking organisations aren't ones that just take risks. They are ones that know when to take risks and when not to take risks. I just urge you to keep that in the front of your mind, please, planning staff. Right, enough of me, enough said. Francis, big day in Russia today. What's the latest from the Navalny funeral? Yes, thanks, Dom. Our very own Natalia Vasilyeva, who will be very well known to listeners, is covering the funeral of Russia's foremost opposition leader for our live blog As We Speak. Thousands of mourners were lined up outside the church on the outskirts of Moscow an hour before the body was to be prepared for burial, according to Orthodox Christian tradition. Some supporters, dressed warmly for a frigid and wet afternoon, arrived in the area several hours before the church service. Many carried flowers. Some could not hold back their tears. It would appear that many are middle-aged and older, which is quite interesting. They've come out despite the fact that the Kremlin has seemingly sought to hamper this funeral at every opportunity. Authorities earlier dispatched a sizable police force, including riot police, to the area, warning against unauthorised gatherings in an apparent bid to spook Navalny supporters. Snipers have been placed on rooftops and authorities appear to be jamming communications outside the church, according to some journalists there. Navalny's family were also told last night that no hearse driver was initially willing to take his body to the funeral service after receiving several threatening phone calls. But evidently a solution was found as the casket with Navalny's body has now been taken out of the church by the undertakers after an extremely short service, one barring members of the public from attending to say their goodbyes and which was also, we understand, ordered to be cut short. Footage seen by The Telegraph shows mourners outside the church chanting Navalny's name. And whilst most mourners were wary of talking to reporters or identifying themselves in light of Russia's draconian laws against dissent, some brave ones did. It's a huge loss, said one lady. I'm offering my deep condolences to his mother, his wife and children because not everyone can bear what they've had to bear. For everyone who is here... Those who can't be here and those who are too afraid to come. Alexei was the person who not only gave his life fighting for something, he gave his life fighting for us. She'd come all the way from Russia's westernmost city of Kaliningrad. 
This man is a hero for our century and for our country. We will not forget him and we will not forget what the government did to him, said another. Some foreign diplomats chose to attend, including the French ambassador to Russia and the UN ambassador. Lord Cameron, Britain's foreign secretary, whilst not there, has released a statement saying that Moscow must be held accountable. Putin tried to silence Navalny, but the world was watching, he wrote. On the day of his funeral, we remember his spirit of defiance in the face of brutality from the Russian regime and his courage in standing up to corruption. We must continue to hold Russia to account. Unsurprisingly, the Kremlin has said it has nothing to say to Navalny's relatives on the day of his funeral. That's come directly from a spokesman. Members of the public who take part in these unauthorised rallies will be held accountable by the law, he added. It's important, I think, to remember that the actions of the Kremlin today are ultimately of fear. After all, if this state were truly one with a sworn allegiance to Putin, there would be no need for censorship, no need for riot police, no need for such threats. There is opposition in Russia, but it has suffered a severe blow with the loss of their most prominent figurehead. Nevertheless, this should be seen as further evidence of Russia's descent into a more fascistic, totalitarian state. One need only step back and look at some of the stories we've reported on in recent weeks. The imprisonment of Oleg Orlov, the head of Memorial, the arrest of foreign journalists, the fact it remains a crime to call the war in Ukraine a war. Putin is tightening his grip, emboldened by Western weakness. In my interview with Mikhailo Podolyak, which will be going out in today's episode, he stressed very persuasively that Russia is becoming a society that can only function whilst at war, which, of course, has implications for all of us in the West. History shows that militaristic states become increasingly bellicose until they are humbled, engorged on their own successes. So that's the update on Navalny's funeral, Dom. There are some important long reads for us to cover next week, not least one in the New York Times about alleged CIA involvement in Ukraine, which has caused a bit of a stir. But for now, since we're on the subject of Putin, I'm more than happy to hand over to Haley. Lovely. Thanks, Francis. As you say, we will watch with interest. I've, I've seen reports that there are people chanting Navalny's name in Russia right now. So we will watch the wires and elsewhere later on. Social media probably be quicker to see if, if anything happens there. But now, very delighted to, to welcome Haley to, to the pod. You've been you. looking at some interesting stuff, which we very bleakly touched on before, the Wagner Group or Africa Corps, whatever we're supposed to be calling them these days, this idea they're weaponising immigration into Europe, including, as you've written today on the the, the front page splash of The Telegraph, a 15,000 strong border police force comprising former Libyan militias controlling the flow, the tap of migration into uh, southern uh, Europe. What's going on? Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Well, we've seen some intelligence documents which have been detailing these plans, as you say, for this Libyan militia. What was really interesting about these intelligent documents, because it's been feared for some time that, that Russian agents have been using this tactic to destabilise the West by, by shipping migrants to the borders or, or even giving them a little push across the border into Europe. Um, but we've seen some intelligent docs which are detailing plans to set up this militia in Libya. And what is really interesting is that it talks directly about the fact that this is about controlling the borders. It's not about oil or anything like that. It is about migration. And, and as I say, that's something that's not always been clearly said by the Russian agents who've been involved in this. Now, the plan for that militia didn't go ahead for various reasons that we can't discuss at the moment. But 
there are, as we know, a lot of Russian private militias who already have strongholds in Africa. And as one security source said to me, if you control immigration, then you can essentially, maybe control is a bit strong, but you can essentially have an influence over elections because immigration is a key issue in elections, not just in Britain, and it's going to be a massive issue in the general election coming up, but it's also a key issue in countries across Europe. And so a kind of tap of immigration that you can turn on and off to influence public opinion and policy is a really powerful tool for destabilisation. And like I say, the plans that we've seen, which were clearly about controlling immigration, didn't go ahead. But the Wagner Group, for example, has been active in Libya for a number of years now. And they also, it's not just the Wagner Group, there's other private militias, and as you say, the Africa Corps are taking over from them. But they now have strongholds in in Mali and Burkina Faso, but also in the Central African Republic, Sudan and Libya. And if you look at that map, you can there you can see how that means they have a route to push these migrants straight from Central Africa up through Sudan into Libya and then up into the Mediterranean, where every year we see those boats coming across and, and causing great problems for European governments. So. It's interesting that one expert said to me, if you look at the map of where Wagner are active or where militias and private mercenaries are active, that map is indistinguishable from the immigration routes. Now, Frontex, which is the European border guards, have warned that this year that's going to be a major issue for the security of the EU's borders. And they warn that not just because it's something that we've seen before, but they think that it's going to increase, actually, as Putin becomes increasingly isolated over the war in Ukraine, he's going to hit out more and more on issues like this. And we've had Tom Tugendhat, the security minister, on the radio this morning talking about our piece that we ran. And he said that he thinks that this is something that is definitely happening and it's definitely a threat to our security. And he says this shows exactly why we need to tackle Vladimir Putin, not just in Ukraine, but around the world, really. And so I think that as well, it's going to become a central issue. I've spoken to other MPs and, and ministers who are saying that this shows exactly why it's not just a threat to the eastern borders and the southern border, which is where Russia are bringing migrants to, but it's a threat to, to Britain and shows why the government needs to get on top of our immigration policies, really. Yeah, and I think it was one of the reasons that Britain pulled out of the UN mission in Mali was because of the influx there of Wagner forces and their work with the, the Malian government who Britain through the UN were also supporting, and it was deemed it was just deemed very awkward. As in, I wouldn't have, yeah. I would have planned if I was a Wagner commander, I would have planned some sort of some joint operation, or I would have lent some supplies, or offered humanitarian medical assistance to the Brits, or just for the photo opportunity of Wagner forces and Brits working together. So it is an absolute well mess, but they know they are creating the mess. They know of the of what they're doing. It's very yeah. very murky. We do need to keep an eye on that. Now, we are squeezing between some very tight legal constraints here and so nudging our way through almost like David Knowles squeezing into his lederhosen. It's, it's that tight. <laughs> but you hinted that this was part of a, a longer bigger story that you're working on. Are you able to give any idea of time frame of when we should expect more from you? Because it's fascinating stuff. Not really at the moment, I'm afraid, Tom. But it's something we're still working on. And obviously, we're always looking at the wider implications and the wider actions of Wagner, as as you as well are looking at that too. But we're looking at how Russia, soft power is now targeting Tunisia as countries like that are becoming increasingly marginalised with what's going on with Palestine and Israel as well. So uh, there will be more to come, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to be very vague at the moment. Perfect political answer. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Hayley. Thanks so much for joining us today. Much. More from the Telegraph. Yeah, so as Hayley says, it's very wide. All the, the influence here 
and looking further afield where other parts of the Russian state apparatus reach. Delighted again now to, to speak to Tim. Welcome, Tim, back to the pod. Tim, you've been on your travels recently. You were down in the southeast of Europe. The aftermath of Russia's 2008 invasion of Georgia, still the impact reverberates to this day. The Russian influence there on politics and the people of the country, including when we were chatting earlier on. It's fascinating to hear your comments about the members of the Georgian Legion fighting in Ukraine. I want to hear more about that. This is what happens for a view of what happens to territory ceded to Moscow in the context of some who might wish for, oh, negotiate Zelensky. Come on, what are you doing? Tim, what did you see on your visit to Georgia? Exactly. Thank you, Dom. Yeah, I went this month for a week. Uh, it was a fascinating time amid all the excellent food and lots of meat, which is very reasonably priced compared to London prices. But anyway, that's besides the point. Yes, the question is, the question that I went there thinking and asking was, what happens when you see territory to Russia to end a war? Now, that's exactly what happened in 2008, when there was a brief five-day Russo-Georgian war, when Russian-backed separatists ended up taking control of both South Ossetia, which is a northern province in, in, in Georgia, recognised internationally still as Georgian, and also in the more coastal Abkhaz region, Abkhazia. And so that war ended after five days, and peace deal was brokered by France, which left the separatists in charge of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And, and ever since, Georgia has not been in control of these two provinces, which remain internationally recognised as its rightful territory. And so in this sense, effectively, the war has been frozen along the front lines because of the giving away of territory. Now, where does that sound familiar? Does that remind any of you of anywhere? Well, what it should remind you of is Ukraine. And one of the places I went to was right on the border of South Ossetia, which is a dramatic mountainous region with the Caucasus Mountains bubbling up out of the surface and rising far higher than anything we have in Britain, although I'm sure some of our American listeners will be familiar with very much larger mountains anyway. But I went to a village called Egneti. Now, Egneti is this mountain foothill village, which before the 2008 war, war had this very attractive little orthodox chapel up on the hill. Now, they have since been severed from that by this new border that separates this Russian-backed separatist region from Georgia itself. And now in November, one of those villagers decided, some might say bravely, some might say foolishly, to go and visit that orthodox chapel. And he live-streamed himself doing it on Facebook. Now, the second time he went back, there happened to be some border guards waiting for him. Now, this man, Tamas Ginturi, I spoke to his cousin, Givi, he was shot dead by the border guards. He's tried to run away, fearing being detained because he was a veteran of the Georgian army who fought against the Russian-backed separatists during the 2008 war. And this is quite a common theme. So on the border, there have been something in the region of 1,800 abductions of Georgian citizens since the 2008 war. Now, most of these are taken to prisons for interrogation and torture. There are cases of death where Georgians are killed by the interrogators who... The South Ossetian bodyguard is half South Ossetian and half Russian FSB. So this isn't just Russia saying, we back you guys. This is full involvement. And another thing this is very striking is in the regional capital of South Ossetia, it's a place called Shkin Valley. This isn't a South Ossetian army base. This is a Russian army base, which is one hour from Tbilisi. 
And also in Abkhazia, they had their building a naval base there. I've spoken about this on the podcast previously at Ocham Chire. It's going to host some of the Black Sea fleet, get them out of the range of the devilish Ukrainian drones and artillery fire and missile strikes. And so what we can effectively see is this isn't like a British alliance with a country where we get on quite well. This is full involvement, this really strong militarily backed alliance. And effectively, although peace was secured with that peace agreement in 2008, the war is not over in the sense that Russia has continued to exert an incredible amount of pressure on Georgian politics, to some extent that some say their independence is inhibited. So I've told you just now about the army base, which is one hour from Tbilisi. Obviously, any operation would be reminiscent of February 2022, when, of course, the Russians went straight for Kiev. Same could happen here. And that is a real worry for people. And its effect on Georgian politics has effectively been to paralyze it. So basically, the ruling party in Georgia, now they've got elections coming up in a couple of months, but it's called the Georgian Dream. And they are, some describe them as pro-Russian, some say they're just not pro-Ukrainian. Now, effectively, their policy is we're not going to do anything to upset Russia because there is just a fear that there will be another invasion. And the effect is that um, George has not spoken out against um, the war in Ukraine. It was previously a very strong ally of Ukraine during um, a very liberal period from 2000 to 2012. Um, And... One of the real ways we see this, as you mentioned, Dom, is the Georgian Legion now. The Georgian Legion is the largest contingent of foreign fighters fighting in Ukraine. They have about 2,000 men fighting there. And one of the men who was fighting there is a man called Alkadi Kazradzi. And I spoke to his brother Vako in a tiny place called Kerbali, which is right on the border of the South Ossetian region. It's Georgian territory. It's a village that's split in two by this military checkpoint that guards the border to South Ossetia. And Arkady was shot dead in April last year at point blank range in quite brutal close quarters combat near Rubizhna, which is in Luhansk. He was killed two Russians before being overpowered. So he was fighting in Ukraine. And he's also a former Georgian army man. So you might expect that this is a Georgian who has fought abroad, formerly of the Georgian army, he's fought very valiantly, and yet Arkadian people like him are not allowed to be buried in the main military cemeteries in Georgia. And they are also, if one of these volunteer fighters dies, the Georgian government offers no support to their families in paying or logistically helping them bring the bodies back. And also they don't offer any pressure on the Russian government to return the bodies that are trapped now, still are trapped behind Russian lines, leaving those families unable to conduct a proper burial on this very important, very religious country, very Georgian Orthodox country. And that's quite important. And as I was speaking to his cousin Vako, who's 44, we visited his grave, which is it's an ordinary cemetery in his home village. He got a picture of him in his combat fatigues. And on the corner of the grave, now the graves in Georgia, they're square marble and granite affairs. They're very different to graves we have in the UK. But there are these ribbons 
And the colors of those ribbons are yellow and blue. And I think that tells you everything about Vako before he died, who's fighting for Ukraine. And what Arkady was saying to me was the government sees these volunteers as hired killers. It doesn't see them as fighters for Georgian freedom, which is why they go there. They go to Ukraine to fight because they believe if, if Putin can be stopped there, then Georgia's independence can be secured and there will not be another invasion if Putin stopped there. If Russia is prevented, this is the whole thing why people warn that we've got to keep supporting Ukraine because otherwise Putin is just going to be emboldened. And the government denies that they're heroes. And this is it causes the families an, 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 an immense amount of grief because these families who Georgia isn't the most developed country and, and the, the cost of bringing a body back from overseas can be very, very expensive. And essentially, that is just a case in point about what Georgian politics has been left to become following the 2008 invasion. Essentially, it remains in the grip of Russia. Russia is not in control of most of Georgia, and yet most of Georgian politics is in the control of Russian influence. And basically, whatever policy is done primarily under the understanding that if this will antagonize Russia, we won't do it. If it will not antagonize Russia, okay, let's consider it. And I think it's a real good lesson for us as we and policymakers across the West and also in Ukraine as we consider how long this war will go on for. Well, the way to end the war is to negotiate a peace deal. There are questions about whether it's even possible. But the understanding would be that the price of peace in Ukraine would be the surrendering of territory, and that might end the war. But the lesson from Georgia is that it doesn't necessarily win a peace. It doesn't necessarily, and in fact, it does not, earn the return to freedom and peace and freedom from Russian influence. That is not achieved by this sort of peace when land is given away. And I think that's a real lesson that us in the West, particularly politicians, I think that's a lesson we've really got to we've really got to understand because history teaches great lessons and this was only 16 years ago and it's a great lesson to learn and I'd commend any Western politician to consider the Georgian experience and say, is that what you want for Ukraine? If it is, fine, go ahead. But we know what the alternative is and perhaps it's worth considering. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, as you say, it's not as if the historical markers aren't there. We just have to make this stuff up and try and extrapolate from nothing. All the precedents are there. Thank you so much for that. Look forward to hearing when you when you go back on your travels. Tim, I know you've got to dash off. Haley's already had to head back to the desk. So I've just got one, then Francis, for you, please. And I note with interest that Ukraine has got through the winter using domestic gas production for the first time in its history. This comes from Naftogaz's CEO, that's the, the state um, energy provider, CEO Alexei Chernyshov, speaking on or writing on Facebook earlier today, he said, 10 years ago, nobody would believe in it. Two years ago, when the full-scale war began, it was also difficult to believe in it. But we did it, and now we plan to maintain the trend of Ukraine's energy independence in the future. So, Ukraine's energy sector remains stable. This sector, the destruction of which you'll remember, was one of Putin's highest priorities. He has failed. He's failed in that effort. Now, just as in the energy sector, I think we can read across into the military sphere. This Russian army can be made to fail. They are succeeding in the East now, I think, because of equivocation and timidity by some of those in positions of power outside Ukraine who could do something about it. But look at what Ukraine has done with its energy sector that we thought couldn't really happen. And I just say to the West, that's very grand, but look, now is the time for action, not self-deterrence. We should not allow ourselves to be deterred. 
That's what he wants. Look at what they've done to the energy sector. Just think what they can do. And again, a bit like Tim was saying from Georgia, we can see what they can do. We know what Ukraine can do if we give them the weapons, if they have the training, if they've got the support, the political support. So just please get on and do it. Okay, Francis, last one of the week. Your final thought, please. Well, thanks, Tom. That was really interesting hearing Tim's perspective on Georgia. The lesson to me is if Russia has any influence, even over a so-called independent region, they sow discord. And it perfectly encapsulates the Ukrainian position on some of these topics. It's been a heavy few days, Dom, I think it's fair to say. So I wanted to end the week on a lighter note. I know listeners have enjoyed some of the colour from our travellers travels in Ukraine. So I thought I'd share a couple more humorous episodes whilst we were out there. One was the sight of a pair of goats munching on the grass in the middle of central Kiev near the Golden Gate with cars and pedestrians whizzing around them. It was a rather surreal sight. But when I put this to one of the Ukrainians we were walking with, she simply shrugged it off and said, this is Kiev. Here, anything's possible. No explanation offered, but anyway, I thought that was in its own way of a perfectly adequate answer. Listeners will also recall that I was very worried about Dom not eating enough. This was a trend, I'm sorry to say, that continued throughout the trip, hence why I encouraged him to order an especially large pizza on the one night when we weren't eating Ukrainian cuisine. Little did I know, but because he was afraid of being seen not to finish said pizza... He was feeding slices of it to one of our Ukrainian host's dogs under the table, much to her apparent dismay when he fessed up. And some a warning to listeners, never say to a pet owner when they're aggrieved, as Dom did, but it's just a dog, did not go down too well. Then in Poland, there was the Helm 2 Fajita Wrap Challenge, Do you want to fess up to that one, Dom, or should I leave it up to the listeners' imaginations? Just remember, I have the footage. I I just think that it was very brave of me to attempt to order food in Polish. I just got the numbers wrong, (laughs) badly wrong as it turns out, and nearly a yard of wrap turned up, which, again, you challenged me to eat. So, of course... I ate the lot. But not without discomfort, listeners. No, I got the, got the sweats and everything. It was, it was not, a, not a particularly pleasant sight. And we then had another three hours in a small train carriage together with, with Jack, our videographer. The less said about that, the better. Well, thank you, Francis. We are expecting Santa's little helper back next week at some point with Adley, our audio producer. So stand by for more tales of food on the road. Thank you to everyone for listening. And we will see you again on Monday. But from The Telegraph in London, I wish you a very good afternoon. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. To mark the two-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, The Telegraph was given exclusive access to speak to some of the most powerful figures in President Zelensky's administration. Last week, Dom interviewed General Bodanov, the head of Ukraine's military intelligence. This week, I sit down with one of Zelensky's chief advisers, Mikhailo Podolyak. Since early 2020, as listeners will know, he has controlled the entire information strategy of the office of the president, shaping the way that Kyiv has projected its struggle to the world. In the days following the invasion, he was also the main speaker on behalf of Ukraine in the negotiations between his country and Russia. At this pivotal moment for the Ukrainian government and military, with the country changing generals and resetting its messaging in the face of Russian advances, we speak to the man crafting the narrative which impacts all of us in the West. Thank you very much for talking to The Telegraph. To quote you recently, you said that the key issue of the Munich conference and of this political season is why do Putin and Russia still have the resources to wage war and destroy the world's rules? What's your answer to that question? This is a key question for today, because the correct answer depends on what kind of future you want to live. I don't mean us, but you. I mean the Western world as a whole and the whole concept of a free world. Putin's war in Ukraine clearly establishes that international law does not exist, global rules do not exist. Only violence exists as an instrument of domination. Putin says that Russia considers itself a much more powerful country than it is in terms of technology, in terms of evolutionary progress. And Putin says that he wants to dominate and is ready to pay a huge price for it. That is, he is ready to sacrifice a large number of people, not only strangers, not only citizens of other countries, but also citizens of his own country. He is ready to spend everything, reputation, business connections, the economy, finances, everything in order for him to dominate and for you to be obeyed. Again, not Ukraine, but you. And so that you do not prevent Russia from behaving as it sees fit. That is to say, in post-Soviet times, to dominate territories such as Ukraine. And then I have a question. Do you understand this? Because Putin understands the price to be paid for this war. Do you understand the price that you will pay for the war if it ends the wrong way today? Because this will be scaled up and Putin is already rebuilding his country. It already looks like a military country, like a camp where people work exclusively for the war. Already, Russia today, this is obvious, can only exist in a state of war. That is, Putin can only attack other territories because it allows him to control his territory. He is putting all resources on the war, and not only his own resources. He has already begun forming a new alliance which includes North Korea and Iran, and other countries with many more resources will also be included. And again, the question, if all this is happening in front of your eyes, and we say that in this war it is necessary to have a certain armed parity, or any other parity, in order to keep Russia where it is, then the question of resources becomes key, here and in Russia. Why do we have it? Why in Ukraine? because the war is going on in the territory of Ukraine. But the war is also going on on a larger scale. Cyber war, information war, a war of values, a war for diplomatic agreements, or not for agreements, but for dominance. And again, this is going on in a big scale. 
Here the question is simple. When you ask, for example, the question of when will the war end, we can only answer when will Putin's resources disappear? When will he stop trading oil using his shadow oil fleet? When will European companies stop working with him on the territory of the Russian Federation? Why do companies governed by European jurisdiction pay him taxes? These finance the military component of the economy. Why has he stopped coming to international summits with international jurisdiction in order to legitimize his actions? These are all specific questions because you cannot help Ukraine with weapons or money, say, build defenses, and at the same time give opportunities to your companies on the territory of Russia to pay taxes. Those funds help recruit people and send them to war. It's an endless circle. These are the questions that need to be answered. And if we decide together that we have to protect the rules, international law, we can call it that, but that is just the rules. Then we have to decide together that Putin must lose all resource opportunities, and after that everything will end quite quickly. The world is at this moment divided on Ukraine. You have some Western countries doing a lot, some not doing enough, and some countries outwardly hostile. There are a lot of fears about America particularly, and if what will happen if it withdraws or reduces its support for Ukraine. If that happens, is Europe able to do enough to keep Ukraine in the fight? Good question, but it's much broader than that. Europe will have the resources and it will help because of the risks caused by the Russian Federation today. It is obvious. And Europe has already changed its rhetoric. I mean continental Europe as well, not only Britain, but also continental Europe has changed its rhetoric and its assessment of Russia. Everything that Russia is doing today is a huge risk for Europe, and that is understandable. Another issue is that for a long time Europe looked at the security circuit incorrectly. The security architecture is global. Europe believed that there is a great partner, the United States, which can always provide a sufficient amount of equipment that can be used to solve any security issue. And in the same way, Europe generally believed that there could never be a large-scale war on the territory of the European continent. This is an underestimation of Russia. This is generally ignorant of Russia. By the way, you need to know Russia, you need to study and understand Russia. Do not think that Russia is interested in corrupt elements and conducts business through corruption with one or other European partners. Then this will guarantee that war does not occur. This is not the case. Europe is being rebuilt today. Europe will stand by Ukraine. This is obvious, because it is a matter of European security. But is the question broader? Because it would be strange to lose to the Russian Federation. It would be strange to lose overall democratic Ukraine, including for the United States. And what is the United States? It has the reputation of a global leader. It is the reputation of a country that prescribes the rules of coexistence in the world. And look, you prescribe these rules and say, we are the leader, we are responsible for the fact that these rules cannot be violated. We generally want them to be guarantees of a secure future. And you are asked a question, reputation is worth something, and you consider Russia to be a key opponent. You have to pay for this reputation as a key country of the world, a global country of the world, $61 billion dollars. This is direct financing of a country that is directly at war with your key opponent today. And you say, no, and yet want to continue to be considered the most powerful country. How will it be perceived by the other countries? Not us and you, not democracies. How will it be perceived by the countries that want a different type of global leadership? How should they evaluate such behavior? They could be saying, look, if there is a crisis, then all global democratic countries will not interfere in it because it's very dangerous. Then the world will look different. What will happen in this world? In this world there will be a lot of chaos, a lot of escalation. 
a lot of different wars. A triumvirate will dominate, as I said, Russia, North Korea, Iran and so on. A lot of terrorism, a lot of political violence, another configuration of the world in which there will be no future, well, such as we want, a projected future. This is a question of supporting or not supporting Ukraine, because there is not a war for territory. There is no war for territory in Ukraine today. Russia frankly says, we want to destroy this state, we want to seize not a state, we want to seize the right to dominate, to be global, too global. We cannot compete technologically with you, with Britain for example, but we want you to fear us, that's all. We have journalists on the front line near Avdika. I'm interested in your perspective on the retreat there, but also soldiers we speak to there say that they do not have the ammunition to be able to fire on the Russians there. Just how severe is the ammunition crisis Ukraine faces? There are three things I want you to understand in terms of what is happening. Avdivka is an example, and then everything will be clear. Russia has abandoned the creative type of warfare. For all the talk of high-precision weapons, Russia is fighting on quantitative parameters, a large number of mobilized, a large number of old Soviet equipment, of projectiles, including those they received from North Korea. In the last four months, for example, they have received more than a million shells from North Korea, and they are in certain areas, the key areas are Donetsk, Luhansk, and the north of Zaporizhia region. They are trying to advance through the lines of our defense with numbers. This is the first thing that is very important. Russia fights with numbers, and this tells us that the price of war for Russia does not exist. Well, that is, no matter how much we kill the volume of Russians, it will not, for the time being, be critically important for Russia. On the other hand, the retreat from Avdivka does not fundamentally change the front line. It is an insignificant advance of the Russians, 100 meters, 200 meters, 500 meters, no more. The front line does not change, the intensity of the hostilities does not decrease. And here's the third factor. In order to effectively work against the quantitative attacks of the Russian Federation, and I will add that for the last three months, Russia has been using its dominance in tactical aviation over the front line and using a huge number of guided air bombs, that is, completely burning out our defensive line. FAB bombs, the FAB 500, the FAB 250. Again, in order to effectively counter this, we need many more 155mm calibre projectiles, artillery in general, long-range missiles, which will all allow us to significantly destroy Russian logistics and the supply of Russian equipment, etc. Drones with radio-electronic control. If we want to continue the dominance of Ukraine on the front line, the initiative should be taken by Ukraine, regardless of whether we conduct defensive or offensive actions. We need tactical aviation that can significantly destroy Russian K-52 attack helicopters and tactical aviation, depending on how they are used. I do not see a significant change in the position on the front line, but I see that Russia today has a significant advantage in the number of shells, missiles, aviations and ballistics. Another thing that soldiers say to us is that the Russians are very well dug in defensively, but the Ukrainian forces are not. We expect this year to be one of attrition as both sides mobilize resources. Why is Ukraine not building defensive lines that soldiers feel will keep them safe? This is not true at all. We also have equipped defensive lines. We also have appropriate investments and fortifications, meaning the development in key directions where the relevant combat operations are taking place. This is in the direction of Donetsk and Luhansk. 
the south of the Kharkiv region. It is not a question of who has more or fewer defensive structures. It is a question of a comprehensive approach to defensive, offensive or counter-offensive actions. And in order to effectively work, for example, with the defense forces of the Russian Federation, you need appropriate weapons. In this case, it is long-range missiles, whether it is drones in a large number of different modifications or is aviation. Because if you even have a defense line built, you are bombarded every day on a large scale, bombarded with guided aerial bombs. It will not help, because they will simply burn the earth in a certain sense of the word, and that is why it is necessary to take a comprehensive approach here. There is a line of defense, and the Russians have a line of defense. Of course, after the Kharkiv operation in 2022, they will invest a lot of money to build an extensive network of defense structures in the occupied territories. But again, I emphasize, once you remove Russian air dominance, once you increase your offensive actions with enough missiles, drones and long-range missiles, you will have an advantage. No matter what they build there, no matter how it looks. Now let's move on to the key subject of mobilization. Mobilization in Ukraine today, it continues and there is currently a relevant law. Yes, it does not take into account the duration of the war, and therefore the new law should take into account the issues of rotation and demobilization, issues of additional staffing, training, a different approach to identifying the social groups that should be mobilized, those that will not be mobilized, what is in reserve, and so on. This law should take a broader look at these problems that arise in a long-term war. But with regard to mobilization, let's be honest. No country will be very sympathetic to mobilization in a state of war. It's obvious. It's a difficult process. People in the 21st century want to live differently. They want to build careers, their families, travel the world. This is not Russia. Ukraine is not Russia. Europe is not Russia. Britain is not Russia. We have completely different values and the price of life is completely different. But despite all this, the mobilization continues, the mobilization will take place, the state will look for incentives, both financial and material incentives, and morally work with public opinion, explaining that there is no option but to protect Ukraine. I will tell you about the sociological studies that were conducted in a number of European countries regarding the readiness of the citizens of these countries to defend their territory with weapons in their hands if there is a direct conflict between NATO countries and the Russian Federation. A low percentage, 12 to 19 percent at most, of people say they are ready to defend the country with weapons in their hands. But in fact, the percentage will be much less. But the state will still carry out mobilization. Any state will if it defends its territory. Ukraine has been fighting for two years. We have been restraining Russia for two years. It is where it was a year ago. They are not advancing anywhere. We have been undergoing mobilization processes for two years. It is so difficult. But all in all, Ukraine has a resource, people who are ready to defend. The problem is that we do not understand how it can be at the same time Russia, North Korea, Iran, a huge amount of weapons, and at the same time we, together with the democratic countries, cannot compensate for this amount of weapons. You make lots of references to what the West needs to give Ukraine in order to continue the fight. You're a former journalist. You, of course, understand how the media works. And President Zelensky is in a challenging position at the moment because, in a sense, people know what he's going to say. He's been saying the same thing for a long time, and understandably so. How is he going to be able to change the narrative, to change how he talks to the world two years in? He has already changed the narratives. He has already changed the understanding of the political process as such. 
In Zelensky's rhetoric, there is much more frankness, willingness to take responsibility, passion, charisma and explanation of the nature of things. This is very important. What was the problem in the last decades? Even the global democratic political process, let's not mention the authoritarian ones. There are no problems with authoritarians, whoever is the master dominates them. In the democratic ones, the willingness of politicians to individually take responsibility and be decisive has been lost. That is to say, everything turned into a long collective discussion. And these long collective discussions sometimes ended with the transfer of the decision to the next political generations and problems accumulated. There is no answer to this problem. There is no answer to that problem. They accumulate and the quality of leadership begins to look different. People begin to subconsciously doubt that a solution will be found in time. President Zelensky just showed that it is very important for modern politics to have the will to deeply understand a specific problem, to have the courage to respond to this problem, even if it is in an unpopular answer or an unpopular decision. The willingness to go to the end, despite what others may say. No, this is impossible. You cannot oppose Russia. It is a big, powerful country. It should be feared. But the president of Ukraine says, no, we will not be afraid, because this is a question of survival. It is a question of the general survival of the principles of democracy, and not only in Ukraine. It seems to me that it is necessary to continue to say that today is not the time for long collective discussions, not the time for bureaucracies, not the time for thinking. The Russian Federation openly tells everyone, either I will dominate with my rules of the Middle Ages where violence should dominate, or I will lose, and then there will be some other Russian Federation that will still adhere to the global rules of behaviour. This is something that must be constantly talked about, and the main thing is not to be afraid to reach a fair conclusion in any matter. Staying with the president, how long can Ukraine go without an election? now that it looks like this conflict is going to go on for longer than many hoped. Let's start with the last one. The length of the war depends on many factors, and I cannot say whether it will drag on for a long time or whether it will end tomorrow. It depends on certain behaviours, determination, certain resource capabilities. It depends on how you and I decide whether we want to have a long-term war that will have a devastating impact on the global process or whether we still want to end it as soon as possible. And the answer to this question depends on when it will end, because it will clearly determine what resources Ukraine will operate with, what resources Russia will have, whether there will be a decision that escalation is a long war and de-escalation is the shortest possible war on Ukraine's terms. This is a question of the terms of the war, the resources of the parties involved, the effectiveness of the sanctions, the isolation of Russia, weapons for Ukraine, large-scale military production, joint with Ukraine or joint between European partners, but saturated arms supplies to Ukraine. This is how it looks. Now, regarding the tenure of the president of Ukraine, Today there is a consensus that in a state of war it is impossible to ensure a truly transparent, competitive electoral process. There is public consensus on this. Society understands that a huge amount of territory is under the attack of Russian or missile equipment or is directly engaged in hostilities. And a huge number of people, in one way or another, are either in occupied territories or in territories where hostilities are taking place or are directly participating in hostilities. And they will not be able to exercise their right to choose or be chosen. Security parameters, financial parameters, parameters of political competition, all these cannot be solved today. This does not mean that the consensus of society cannot change tomorrow. It can change, and then we will talk about it. But today, the president of Ukraine is an absolutely legitimate figure, because society considers him legitimate, and legally he is. 
In my opinion, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, perfectly corresponds to the historical moment in which we are. And by the way, it is very important to realize this. One must not be afraid to live in historical moments and look accordingly in a historical moment. One must also be able to do this, and President Zelensky absolutely corresponds to the historical mission and the historical moment. And to what he is doing today in Ukraine, together with Ukraine, it is important. Will, knowledge, willingness to take responsibility, and willingness to work. These are the key features that should be inherent in the president of a country in a state of war. You just mentioned the occupied territories. Ukraine is committed to restoring all of those territories back to its sovereign territory. How would it go about doing that, given what we know Russia has done in those places in terms of moving children, destroying infrastructure? What does the process look like of repairing that damage? Because some people say that it is impossible, so why even attempt it? It's a fantastic question. This is a fantastically difficult question. It is even a philosophical question. Who are we? Because Russia entered the territory of Ukraine not just to destroy a small number of enterprises or objects. The Russian Federation entered with a well-thought-out concept of genocide. Abduction of children is only an element of this large-scale program. They had lists of whom and how they would be taken away. There were many filtering checkpoints where they filtered adults. Some of them disappeared. The part that Russia considers potentially not loyal to the concept of the so-called Russian world, which they tried to build on the entire territory of Ukraine, because they believed that they were occupying the entire territory of Ukraine. They destroyed the institutions of the state of Ukraine and the concept of the state of Ukraine. They killed citizens they considered disloyal. These citizens disappeared or received weeks of torture in special facilities built by Russia. I want you to understand that Russia entered the territory of Ukraine for the sake of a large program of deportation and genocide against the local population. Of course, they destroy everything, everything they can, and when they do not get a result in three days, seven days, 14 days, they definitely added hatred at all levels, and that is why they are destroying, because they understand that they will leave this territory anyway. They want to destroy it, burn it down, so that nothing happens. We will have to build all this back from scratch, and we will have to bury many people who lived here, and we will have to explain to generations, both this and the next, what the Russian world is, what its true face is. I think that not everyone in the West understands this. In the West, they think that the Russian world is a big theatre. It is Boris Godunov, it is Dostoevsky, it is Chekhov, but it is not the Russian world. It is the disguise of the Russian world. The Russian intent is genocide and the occupation of the territory of another country. And we will have to invest a lot of money. We will have to work a lot with people, with the mental health of these people, trying to return the main thing lost by these people, faith in humanity. And it will be quite difficult work. But the main thing is to end the war with a fair ending. Because Russia must first answer for war crimes and crimes against the civilian population. Secondly, Russia must go through repentance. Russia must realize what they did, and it will be necessary to show them, to illustrate what they did to the citizens of Ukraine. And after that, they should be charged with reparations. Because neither you nor we should spend money to restore the infrastructure they destroyed. Russia has to pay a huge amount of money and over more than one generation. Then the world can, in principle, have the rules for which everything was built, and I mean democracy. Otherwise, we will have a constant process of war in other territories. We will have a constant process of Mr. Orwell, who clearly recorded endless war for the sake of war. Russia wants to have an endless war in the European continent for the sake of war and for the sake of not being responsible for all those genocidal crimes against the specific sovereign state of Ukraine. 
you were part of the conversations that took place with Russia once the invasion began. If Ukraine, let's say theoretically, the lines were frozen where they are tomorrow and Ukraine was given cast iron security guarantees like Article 5, maybe not NATO, but like Article 5 from Britain, from America, from many European countries, that if there was another invasion, they would go to war to defend Ukraine. Would that be enough for you to end the war? It's not even a difficult question. It's too simple a question. There are no such functions and no such options. It is an illusion. It is a fiction. Today, Putin is provoking NATO countries and Putin realizes that he will be able to attack NATO countries if he does not lose this war. And he only needs the freezing of the conflict in order to update his army and his means of killing. And he will invest. He will rebuild the country. It is a military country now. It will be subject to only one idea of war. For the sake of war, he will attack other territories by various means much more aggressively than before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Information, cyber threats, diplomatic provocations, political protests, political provocations, coup attempts both on the African continent. It will be in Europe as well, including terrorist groups which will be financed on a much larger scale by the Russian Federation. Other wars both in the Middle East and not only in the Middle East. This will be an ever-growing threat. Why should he not attack countries such as the Baltic states? Why should he not attack, for example, the countries of southern Europe, Romania, Moldova and so on? I don't see what should prevent him from doing this, because he is not taking responsibility for the war in Ukraine. And then I will have a question for you. Are the countries in the NATO bloc ready for a direct war against Russia? It will not be a small war with only special forces. No. Military production will be built in the Russian Federation, a huge number of shells, missiles, etc., the Russian Federation will have three to five million people who will have experience of direct participation in the war and whom you cannot then bring back to the factory and ask to work there because he has bitten the blood of the civilian population. He learned to kill, he likes it, to rob, to kill and not bear responsibility for it. And he will send these five million to Europe. Are you ready to fight against them in Europe? Is there experience of the great war in Europe? Is Europe ready to display so many weapons when so many people oppose all this? This is nonsense. This is the most dangerous scenario. The most dangerous scenario is freezing the war and giving Putin the opportunity to work on his mistakes and launch a large-scale attack in Europe. The key task for today is to realize it. This is the first. The second is to realize that Russia must lose if you want your children to be safe. The third, if you have realized this, understand that the only army that is ready to confront Russia today is the Ukrainian army. And finally, the fourth, the resource should be comparable, taking into account that there is North Korea and Iran. We need more missiles, drones, shells, ammunition, anything that will allow us to effectively destroy Russia until it chokes on its own blood. It is very important. Are there any questions that you're never asked by journalists that you would like to answer and talk about? Only one thing. Why are we where we are today? And the answer is very simple, because you should never turn away from difficult questions. Do not be afraid to answer them, even if everyone does not like it. And don't be afraid to tell the very painful truth. And the very painful truth in this case is the fatal mistake of the democracies who believed that history had ended. Fukuyama, for example, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the fatal mistake was that Russia did not go through the repentance for the crimes of the Soviet Union. On the contrary, Russia received support from democratic countries, received resources, consultations and an obligation not to touch Russia for the crimes it committed. And then the question, why are we so afraid? Why are we, Western democracies, who say a lot of positive words about ourselves, why are we so afraid? 
And why can we not break our fear today, even when we see the heroic resistance of Ukraine? How do we break this fear, and when will we break it? I have never heard. Because it is very difficult to admit to yourself that you are wrong and that you are afraid. Thank you for talking to The Telegraph. Thank you. Thank you. With thanks to Arthur from our foreign desk for his brilliant dubbing of Mikhailo Podolyak. To watch a video version of this interview, albeit slightly shortened, you'll find a link in the description. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To support our work and to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, please subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just a pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our foreign affairs newsletter, bringing stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. We also do the same for other breaking international stories. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app and leave us a review as it helps others find the show. Please also share it with those who may not be aware we exist. As the disinformation war ramps up, we are relying on your support more than ever. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do continue to read every message. You can also contact us directly on X, formerly known as Twitter. You can find our handles in the description for the episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Rachel Porter and George Cohen. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.